The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from Luke 19, verses 11 through 17. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man." You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Hi, everybody. Good morning. My name is Stacy Croft. I'm the pastor here at um, Christ Presbyterian Church Music Row. And uh, if I haven't met you, I hope I get to you at some point. Grab some time with you, coffee or lunch of some sort. You know, um, this week was I got to do what sometimes I love doing is getting our stack of Amazon returns and returning them all. Isn't it so satisfying like to take returns? And I like to do it all at once. So it's like this credit, credit, credit. You're like, dude, I'm just getting stuff back. Like take your stuff back, get it out of my house and give me my money back. And I do love that because it's a real fun thing, especially at Amazon because they've made it easier. Uh, Now some places they try and make it hard, you know, those kind of things. But it is interesting because... You have to go in, and I don't know if you've, I'm sure many of you have done this. You know, you go in, and 
you kind of select return. But it's funny, you push the your orders button at the top there, and you can just kind of see like everything you order. And uh, if you take a moment, this week I was able to do that. I just kind of strolled through, kind of like, what, what do we order, you know? Uh, it was so interesting, not just the things I was returning, but the other things that we've ordered, you know, this or that. And I just kind of was like, man, that's really interesting. Like, <laughs> what is this? What do my orders say? Like, if somebody was like, look through my orders, what would they think about what I order or who I am? Um, it, it's kind of a really good uh, illustration of that. You know, we've been looking at parables. We're kind of coming in for a landing on parables. And what a parable is is an illustration that typically the Lord Jesus used in the New Testament to get across a point. They weren't an allegory. They weren't uh, anything like uh, where every little thing means something, kind of like uh, Pilgrim's Progress or, or something of that nature. It's like one major theme, uh, that one through line that is supposed to come across that Jesus is wanting to get across. And if you heard this parable... This is one that's actually um, pretty, there's been a lot of ink spilled over it because it kind of shows up a few times in, in a couple of the Gospels, the, the, the accounts of the New Testament, but it also has some echoes in some other ones. And there's a lot of history and a lot of questions about, okay, is this about Jerusalem? What is this about? And if you hear it, you think about the investing, right? And you think about these, these three servants that are really investing and you kind of get to see their orders. <laughs> you kind of get to see where are they putting their money. And really what the parable's about, and what these parables come to, is what do you invest in during this time of waiting until Jesus returns? It's really that simple. What are you really investing in during this time until the kingdom is ushered back in and Jesus returns. And for some of you in this room, you may be like, okay, yeah, we talk about Jesus returning. Is that kind of pie in the sky? This passage and many other passages are saying it's a real deal that, that this kingdom talk, now we don't really talk kingdom talk, but we live it. We have our kingdoms. We're building them. Uh, we, we invest in them. We put our time, our money, our resources to build our own little kingdoms or, you know, larger, if you want to put it that way. So we may not use that word, but it is what we're doing. And the question this parable is really bringing across is, what are we really investing in? What do we use our time, our money, our resources? What are we putting that into? And it can be easy to look in this and say, okay, well, this parable is a little bit like what we've typically live in in our culture. It's kind of like, okay, well, God has given us this, this gift of being here and to know him. Well, we give back. It's just kind of like other things in our, you know, meritocracy. It, as much as we put into church, as much as we put in, you know, is how much we're going to get out. But see, what this parable is not getting at is to fit something else into your regular paradigm of we are meritocracy, capitalists, this kind of thing. I think David Brooks, he wasn't writing about this parable, but he wrote about something I thought was interesting. It kind of exploded that paradigm for a moment that fits into this about the structure of gratitude. Now, listen to what he wrote. David Brooks is an op-ed writer for the New York Times, and he wrote this. Listen to what he said. The basic logic of capitalist 
meritocracy is that you get what you pay for, that you earn what you deserve. But people with dispositional gratitude are continually struck by the fact that they are given far more than they pay for and are much richer than they deserve. And what he goes on to say in this article is to say, yes, we live in a capitalistic society. He's not trying to downplay that. But he's saying, what if, our, what if the way that we approach that was flipped on its head? What if this parable isn't so much about you, you put in what you get, but it's flipped on its head about what does it really mean for us to invest into a kingdom that's returning not on our time frame and not based on our success, but that Jesus will come back. And how are our hearts attuned to that? How do we, how do we live in that way? How do we live in a posture of that? And so we're going to look at this parable in two parts, two ways. One, I just kind of want to look at the fact that he is going to return. I think we need to, to really uh, look at, at that because this parable amongst others is, is really wanting us to say, it's not just about the, the now, we're also looking about what's to come with him returning. And then second, our investment. How do we invest? How do we, how do we actually invest into the now as we wait for him to return? So let's talk about first, he will return, because that's where it begins. Verse 11 says this. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So there's a couple of things happening here. Right before this passage was an account of the Gospels. Now, the Gospels, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, are, are the accounts of Jesus. These are narrative accounts, actual accounts of Jesus, and right before this was an actual account of a guy named Zacchaeus. Now, when you hear that name, it may spring some songs in your head. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Okay, That's a song that we all sing as little kids about these certain characters in the Bible. And Zacchaeus was. He was a small man who was a tax collector. And he was small in stature, and he, as a tax collector, he was Jewish. And so if you were a tax collector, you were already hated because you would take taxes from people and you would take more on top basically to fill your pockets. But then especially as a Jewish man being a tax collector, he was seen as betraying his own people. He was, he was in line with the Roman government. He was taking money from everybody. This guy wanted to see Zacchaeus was a wee little man and he wanted to climb a tree. So the Lord Jesus, he wanted to see, you can see where the rhyme goes. He climbs in a tree because he wants to look at Jesus, because he can't see over the crowds. Jesus passes by, sees this man in a tree. What, what, what an odd kind of thing for a second. Can we just, there's this guy in a tree, and Jesus is like, hey, Zacchaeus, I see you. <laughs> and for Zacchaeus, it was more than I see you stuck up in a tree like a cat, like what are you doing up there? It was, I can't believe that Jesus would recognize me. And this is what he says to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And it, it so transforms Zacchaeus that Jesus would not only see him come to his house, but enter into his life. And there must have been a lot more 
interaction going on, that Zacchaeus was transformed and said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods that I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus says this, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And in some translations, it says the kingdom has come to his house. That the kingdom of God has come. And right after that, it says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Now, why would he do that? Because the kingdom of God is in the air. They're looking. They're waiting. They've been looking for someone to come that they've heard for now centuries to actually rescue them, to transform them, to do what they've wanted to help them. They've been oppressed. Or they've been in a tree, a sinner, thinking, gosh, I have no other life but to do this. They're looking for a kingdom that's going to come. And guess what happens right after this parable? The very famous triumphal entry. That moment when Jesus takes a donkey, rides it into Jerusalem to begin the week of passion where he would go to the cross and die for our sins. And where everyone around him would be waving branches, saying, Hosanna to the highest, because the kingdom of God is coming. And yet all this time, Jesus is wanting them to understand, what does this mean? What does the kingdom of God mean for us? You know, all the longings that we have, all the things that we talk about, (laughs) in our life, in our day. You know, the the things that we confess during confession, the things that we see, I mean, I've never heard of the word hurricane before until the last few weeks, where a hurricane and an earthquake happen at the same time in a place where we just have names, things that are just awful atrocities, and things that we see in our lives. And and, and we think about, okay, as these people are, are, are seeing Jesus come into the city, As Zacchaeus is climbing a tree looking to see who is this guy. And they're looking for the one who's going to come make things right. I wonder how often we really in our world, in our day and time, because we read those things, we say, oh, that's great. Maybe they thought in the kingdom of God. When you really think about Jesus coming back, when you hear the talk of God making things right, the kingdom returning. Do you think of it as like this heavenly, like, well, church will just be, we'll just be a lot more church. Or we'll just be a lot more this or that. Or do you see it as like, you know, what do you really want God to do? Like, what do you really think God is going to accomplish? Because this parable says he went into a far country and he is going to return. He's going to come back. What do we long for to see in our lives made whole, made right? And let's be honest, when when I think about that, sometimes I I don't think enough of, man, maybe I just think the status quo. I just want quiet or peace or I don't know. But when do we ever swing for the fences? And think, God, I want you to, to, to take all the sickness out of me or take all the the broken relationships out of our life or heal all the 
the harm and death, to, to not see hurricanes anymore. To see the things, everything. Like, to, do we ever sit back and go, God, you could do, I want you to do this. And then do we realize, if, if we understand that he's returning, that's what he's going to do. His return is about restoring that. And they were looking for it. In fact, they were wrong in many ways because the disciples kept asking, Jesus, when is the kingdom coming? And they were like, dude, we got the right guy. We're following the right political dude. He's got everything in line. He can feed 5,000 people with barely any bread and fish. This is awesome. We can do this. And yet what he, he keeps telling them, this is not the time or hour. The kingdom is not of this world. And they're like, okay, that's great. This is still awesome. We're going to keep following you. And then when he grows to the cross, imagine he tells this parable and right after this triumphal entry, and they're like, this is really not the guy we thought. He's riding in on a donkey, and yet he goes to the cross a week later. Is this the guy? And yet over and over, every parable not just this one, is saying he will return. The one who first came will return. And the question over and over is, are, how are we living in that? The majority of this parable sits with that. The majority of this parable is, how do we live knowing that he will return? Because he says even to his disciples, it's better that I go. Can you imagine if, if you were one of the disciples and Jesus like, it's better that I go. And he, in, in, in one passage, you actually see him ascending and they're just staring at the sky and an angel comes and says, why do you keep looking in the sky? I mean, can you imagine if we had Jesus here with us and we could ask him anything we wanted and we could talk to him and touch him and feel him and he says, yeah, it's better that I go. Why in the world would he say that? So that we could receive something more than what he could give in the moment, the Holy Spirit. That God now, in this moment, where we are now, that we're not just left alone waiting and kind of hoping and thinking, gosh, we, we don't have anyone with us. It's just because Jesus came and now we know he's going to return. He actually said, it's better that I go because if I don't go, you won't receive what is even better for you. That is the Holy Spirit. And when we talk about the Holy Spirit, sometimes we can talk about the Holy Spirit almost like he's an addendum. But this is actually the third person of the Trinity that Paul says the Holy Spirit is considered a deposit of God's work until he returns. In fact, the word deposit is actually a Greek word used for real estate. And what they would do is they, when you would buy a piece of land, they would get a bag of dirt that you would hold, and that would be your deposit. That would be your guarantee that this land is yours, and you could present it again when, it, when the, you know, the final sale. That the Holy Spirit is that deposit that's not just around you, but within you, working and carrying and moving. And here's the thing. If Jesus has come once and every fulfilled prophecy has come true, everything we read in the Old Testament 
has come true. He will come again. And God is carrying us to that moment. And where this parable really takes us is to remind us, okay, this is, he is returning. How do we live in that? How do we invest? Verse 13, it says this. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minus. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Now, you see that word there twice. This is really interesting. This phrase of doing business, this is the only place in the New Testament where this shows up. And it's the only place in the New Testament where this language and the word in Greek is pragmatuomai. You hear it, pragma, pragmatuomai. It's a very interesting word. Pragmatic is where you might hear that language. But is that it's to be pragmatic. There's to be an activity. But when we read this, it's interesting. We could read this and say, okay, they need to get moving. Get, invest. But what does it mean to invest? Does investing mean they need to be successful? Because this is where you could easily read this and say, okay, this fits perfectly. This is kind of like how I do every, most of my life. Like, I need to do this in order to get this. Merit base. It fits, but it's actually not what it's saying. If you notice, when he asks them how much, you remember, he gives them 10 minus. When he asks them how much they have, each of them has different amounts. One has 10, one has five, and he says, great job. In fact, in verse 17, he says, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little. And he's saying this is the person who has 10. And what he's getting at is the investment isn't about the success. It's about the faithfulness. It is not about the success of what has been produced, but the faithfulness of what they put into it and in whose relationship they're in. Uh, You know, a lot of pastors, when you hear them give illustrations and they quote people, you hear them give illustrations from like C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, you're like, okay, another C.S. Lewis, another J.R. Tolkien illustration. Well, there actually is, and those two men are are fantastic men, J.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, actually wrote a really small short story that many people may not have read. It's called A Leaf by Niggle. It's kind of a strange sounding story, a leaf by niggle. And when he wrote this, it was about a painter who had desire and ambition to write, uh, to uh, go on a, a long journey. And beforehand, he wanted to paint this glorious painting of a tree with just magnificent leaves on it. So he paints the trunk, he begins painting the leaves, and his biggest desire is to paint every leaf with the greatest of detail. And he begins painting the first leaf. But as you read the story, you kind of start seeing him getting distracted over and over and over. And his distractions are not by his own doing. They're his neighbor who, who has illness and he needs to help and wants to help them and tend to them. He has visitors swing by and, and he wants to be a good host. These things after thing, 
of ways that he's wanting to finish this painting. And at the end of his life, which you see, he only has accomplished this one leaf, a leaf by Nigel. And what you see afterwards is, is this glory, glorious moment of, of the idea of it's not about the investment into that. And you see there's disappointment. You're like, oh, man, he only got to paint one leaf. But where was his true investment? Where was his true time? And what you see that J.R. Tolkien is getting at is we have all this ambition, we have these desires, we have these longings to create and, and be of great notoriety, but really what really matters? And what this parable is getting down to isn't the question of are you investing? I think one of the number one struggles of Nashville culture is to have everything well, is to have the whole picture, to have the balanced right life, to have everything fit just right, to have harmony. And I think what we've done and what we typically think is that to invest means we've got that in good balance. That my Christianity fits well into that good balance. It connects to all those pieces, and it does that. But actually, what the investment is, is not being a part of that wholeness. It's saying that in every investment is the kingdom of God what you're investing into. That instead of just investing into having the right neighborhood, job, your children, your family going well, your relationships in harmony, is the kingdom of God being invested into all those places? Because not everything is going to be right. And in fact, harmony and balance and perfection and how it looks is not equal to the faithfulness of the investment of the kingdom of God. Notice this first servant, he has 10 minus, and he gets 10 more. He says, you've been faithful in very little. The next one only has five, but he was given 10. If we think about investing, the first two servants especially, investing is hard. You have to put work into it. You have to think through it. You have to get into the mix. It means engaging into it means engaging into your work. It means engaging into your relationships, your life. Engaging in ways, not just where you invest and give to them, but you invest the good news of the gospel that has been given to you within those things. And we don't always see easy, good return on that. <laughs> it's not always the easiest. It's difficult. It's hard. And what happens with this third servant really shows us more of what that means. When it came to the third servant, it said, Lord, in verse 20, here's your mina, which I, I kept laid away in a handkerchief. By the way, a mina, one mina was three months of wages. So three months of compensation. Think about that. And this person thought, I'll keep it in the handkerchief and I'll keep it here. Now, here's what's interesting. This person, it doesn't say that they didn't have any money. 
It doesn't say they weren't working or investing. They, these people were given this money because they were good at doing this or because he, they wanted them to do this. He just took this money and sat on it. While this servant continued, why, what was he doing? Still doing work, still doing life, but sitting on the money, the investment that the master, the nobleman gave to him. He was comfortable. It fit. It worked. So why was he faithless? Why was he unfaithful to that? Why did he get reprimanded? Well, he didn't invest. Is it because he didn't, wasn't successful? No, it's because he, he wasn't faithful. He, didn't believe, he thought it was about living. I have it. I didn't lose it. I still have it. What you gave me. But he still had everything else. Andy Crouch, who's a great author, thinker, writer, writes about what it means to have a charmed life. And I always loved what he wrote about this. He wrote about what, when we typically think about having a, a charmed life, sometimes we actually put religious language on it and we put blessed life. <laughs> but he said, actually, what we're doing when we do that is we want a charmed life. Where that language comes from, charmed, is from the idea of having a magically perfect working life. Is that when we want a charmed life, is it a life that works everything well? And that there are no bumps. We want things to be more efficient. And we want to be charmed. We want to have the right, that our, that our life equals the, the actual Instagram post we put on. And we want that. And that that's what it, it's equal to. But this is what this, this servant is getting at is, yeah, I still have your mind, but, and here's what's even more fascinating. Lord, I kept it away in a handkerchief for verse 21. I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then, notice the question mark, why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. You see what he's doing here? At first, you think the great speech of this guy is just right. Oh, I was scared. I didn't, I, I, you know, I wanted to make sure I had all the, the money. But you know what, he, what the, the master, the, the nobleman is actually getting at? It's beautifully put. He uses his words against him. He says, you did this because you thought this was my character. But if you read back up in the parable, you notice that his, he's very gracious and is giving his money to these people to invest. He's giving it to them. And yet the character, and this is why the question mark, wait, you, you, you did this because you thought I was a severe man. Do you know what Jesus is getting at in this parable? Every way we invest in this world is based on the character that we think God is. And I'm amazed in my own life and, and in, in the conversations I have with so many of you that we live our life and invest it and our orders are literally because we think God is this way, 
church is this way, Christianity is this way, and we are so certain. We are, we live so certain. All the while, the Lord has given us his word and revealed his character to us. And yet this servant, it's so interesting, says, I know that you're a severe man. He says, well, he used, notice, he used his words against him. If you knew this, then why didn't you do it? He lived out of his fear thinking that the nobleman's character was exactly something it wasn't. How do we invest? It directly correlates to who God is and his character. And there is no better picture of that than this table right here. There's no better picture of the difference between success and faithfulness than at this table. This table defines success, and it can't be yours or mine. This is a table that, when we talk about it, talks about body and blood, and it legitimately is Jesus saying, this is my body, this is my blood, which means this table is not about me. I didn't set this table. This is not about Christ's prayers. It's not about you. So we can't bring any of our success to this table and say, God, I've invested, I've done well. Because the only one who's actually done well is this servant who in every way was successful. And we get the benefits of that. And we get to know what it means to live by faith by coming to this table. Because we can't come to this table with our own success. What happens at this table when you get to taste this bread and this, this juice and wine is you get to taste by faith God's activity in you. There's something happening and you need to know the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is actually at work at this table in you. It's not about you coming forward and thinking really hard, what do I need to invest in? It's first coming forward and saying, who is the one I'm in relationship with? Who's the one who's come to me? Whose character is shown here? It's the one by grace and mercy that defines the way you invest in this world. Because after you leave this table, you're going to go out and you're going to invest in a million things. You will. So am I. Right after you walk out of this door. And whatever that is, you can do it in your own power, building your own kingdom, or you can go it knowing in the one who has given you himself and will return. What do we say every time? We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again, every time at this table. And if he has come once, and he has shown in every single way he has fulfilled that, he will come again. He is successful. <laughs> so that we can be faithful. Even in our feeble faith. If you're here this morning, and maybe you're saying, I don't know if I have faith, I'd encourage you not to take of this table. You don't want to come take of a table when you're kind of going, I don't know if I really have faith in Jesus. But come take of this table if you'd say, I trust, even in my feeble faith, 
in my mustard seed of a faith, that he is successful, that I need his success over and over in his body and blood so that I may live knowing that I can actually invest in this world and know that it won't fall to the wayside because it's based on his strength and his power that we go. Let's stand together.